0: Welcome to the At Peace Parents podcast. I'm Casey, and I'm here to empower you in your decision-making as a parent of a demand-avoidant child. My goal is to share insights that will generate aha moments and support your connection with your child. I'm a mom of two amazing little boys, one of whom is PDA, and I've worked with hundreds of parents just like you to teach them how to lead their child out of burnout and find the clarity, peace, and sense of community they need. Hi everyone, today's episode is an excerpt from a free talk that I gave about PDA in the educational setting on November 2nd, 2022. It was hosted by the Miami Sudbury Democratic School and I presented on the five characteristics of PDA and how to spot them in an educational setting. I was followed by Yana Clements, an expert in self-directed education. I hope that this episode will be helpful to you, especially if you wanna hand it to a teacher so that they can better understand some of the paradoxes of PDA and how it looks different in the home versus in a school setting. All right, enjoy. What I wanna do today is help you, whether you're a parent, therapist, teacher, grandparent, psychologist yourself, um, conceptualize PDA in a way that makes sense to you, um, and also talk about the five characteristics that are observable from the outside of PDA children and teens that are generalizable regardless of the expression of PDA, whether it's more extroverted or internal and regardless of age. And this is based on preliminary research and working with hundreds of parents with children who are PDA. And I'm also raising a PDA child myself, he's eight years old, and I also have a three and a half year old and I'm located in Michigan just to orient you. Um, So the first thing that can be really helpful when trying to understand PDA um, is that although it is part of the autism spectrum, it is really helpful to conceptualize it as a nervous system disability or difference because that's the mechanism that is really what's gonna be causing different behaviors, making it difficult to access certain basic needs and also making it so that the child has trouble with engagement. Okay, so often when we're thinking about autistic children, we think social communication disorder right? And if we're viewing it through this this lens of, you know, can they talk? Are they verbal? Did they have typical verbal development? Do they make eye contact? And do they have friends? Many of the PDA kids are going to get missed because their highest support needs are actually around nervous system and not around social communication. So when I'm working with families or professionals, I always encourage them to first put on the nervous system and autonomy lens or CAP when trying to understand how to help the child, then the sensory lens, then the social communication lens. And I can give you guys examples, but I wanna make sure we get through the content. Okay, so understanding this is the primary reason that if we apply very traditional parenting strategies based on compliance, rewards and sanctions, you being the authority, Or if we're a professional, whether we're a teacher or a therapist, and we're using more traditional autism supports like routines, first, then statements, laminated charts, social communication, scaffolding, the child might be resisting it. And actually, it's making it harder to work with them and harder for them to thrive. Okay, so this is the big picture that is like setting the stage for PDA. Okay, so I'm gonna pause there. Is this making sense so far? You can give me a thumbs up, you can drop a yes. Okay, cool. All right, so the two from my like bird's eye view working with a large end sample, meaning hundreds of families with PDA and also operating in this space myself as a mother, there are two primary paths we see with PDA children in school systems, especially if they're starting out in the public school system. And this is the reason that about 70% of PDA kids, according to the PDA Society, can't access any type of school. Okay, so we often see kids who are in the school system the school sees it them as completely fine typical they don't qualify for support they don't qualify for an iep or a 504 which are our supports in the u.s individualized education plan and a disability plan because the teachers don't see it the administrators don't see it and the parents feel crazy because they're describing all these difficulties and they don't show up in the classroom Okay, but what's happening outside of the classroom is things are continually escalating, basic needs are being impacted, which we'll talk about, and the parents pull the child from school. And they might end up at a wonderful place like a Sudbury or my son's had a great Montessori with his service dog, but not everyone has the privilege to pay for private school or find a fit like that. On the other side of the coin, we have these children who, because of what I said initially, are not viewed through the nervous system disability lens, they're viewed through the autism lens, and it's, it seems like they're, quote, so high-functioning because their social communication skills are so high, okay? And so when they do act out, which is actually the behavioral expression of the disability, which is fight-flight, and we're going to talk about that, they're labeled as defiant behavioral problem and not supported as a child with a nervous system disability. And then they end up outside of the school system. Okay, so these are the two unfortunate paths and this is the reason why 70% of these kids aren't in any school system. And I would actually wager that it's higher than that. So that's sort of like the educational setting that we're operating in. Many of these chi- children, I think, historically get missed or, you know, put in the prison to school to prison pipeline. Um, so that's the landscape. I want to talk about <clears throat> what is PDA, how can we recognize it as parents, educators, therapists, and what is actually going on, <laughs> in the simplest way possible. Okay, so first, I want to talk about what goes on inside of a child or a teen or an adult who's got a PDA neurobiology and then I want to talk about what you see okay so the way that I define PDA is a person who has a survival drive for autonomy that consistently overrides other survival instincts okay so all of us have a need for autonomy Right. And many neurodivergent children have a strong need for autonomy and you can see that, however, what makes a PDA brain unique is that they will consistently perceive in their survival brain, the amygdala or limbic system, a threat anytime there is a perception of a loss of autonomy, freedom, choice or equality to those around them in stature power authority okay so this is happening on a subconscious level for the child teen adult it's not necessarily something they're even aware of but what happens when the brain is perceiving danger is that it tells the nervous system quick go into fight or flight or freeze and stay alive Right? So you see different expressions like a child eloping, running from the school, which is flight, or you see a child acting out, which is fight, or you see a child who is, quote, obstinate and not responding, which is freeze. Okay? But this is so difficult to understand from the outside because it can look like defiance. Okay? So what this looks like. So what's going on internally is nervous system based and this is happening constantly. I wanna give you an example, a clear example of this mechanism and then I'm gonna talk about how it operates in accumulation as well and in subtle ways. So my son, for example, when he was like four and a half, we went camping and he was trying to get close to the fire where we we're cooking s'mores, right? So the survival instinct of don't get burned is something that kicks in when we're getting close to a fire. However, every time the adult said, be careful, don't go near there, don't go nearby, his brain was perceiving they're above me as grown ups and they're taking away my autonomy and I'm going to run towards the fire. So this is a very clear example of how The survival drive for autonomy overrides another survival instinct like safety. And this can happen with other basic needs like eating, which someone mentioned in the chat, where the more a teacher or a parent encourages, cajoles, pressures a child to eat, they will actually perceive threat and their survival drive for autonomy will override the instinct to eat when hungry. Okay, so those are very clear examples, but it's not always this clear, right, in a classroom, in a therapy setting, in a home. And part of the reason for that is because this happens in accumulation. Okay, so in the moment the child can internalize. Yes, it imp- I'm going to talk about basic needs. It impacts all basic needs. Um, and this is why I consider it a disability because the nervous system disables the child from accessing basic needs and secondary needs like going to school. So in accumulation, let's say a child goes to school all day at a public school and they like internalize this nervous system response, they are going to come home and they're gonna have explosive behavior or shutdown when their brain perceives I'm back in my safe place and it's going to disable them from eating or from toileting or from accessing hygiene, like brushing teeth, or bathing consistently, or sleeping. Okay, so many, most parents come to PDA when the child reaches this accumulation of constant nervous system activation from perceived losses of autonomy and equality over and over and over again until the point where they reach burnout, which is when we see it's not temperament, right, where it's like, You might have thought your child was defiant or willful or spirited, right? Or maybe they have an autism diagnosis and you applied more traditional strategies. But it gets to the point where, you know, maybe the child was a picky eater, but then they actually stop eating to the point where there's concern for caloric or nutritional intake, right? Or they go into a non-24-hour sleep cycle or need to co-sleep with parents at the age of 11, 12, 13 to sleep, okay? or they will physically fight you not to bathe or shower, or they have a toileting regression, um, like needing to use diapers after they've been toilet trained or using a bathtub or going outside. So control often coalesces for the child around one basic need that becomes the sticky one. Okay, is this making sense so far to people? Okay, good. (laughs) Okay, so the thing I wanna emphasize here before we go on to the like, what you see. So I'm gonna get to that, Jen, of like why it wasn't hard before, but now it is, is because it happens in accumulation, okay? So yes, it might be that demands are higher, but also this accumulates over time, which is often why parents are like, did my child just become autistic? did they just become pda it's because over time the nervous system accumulation builds and they reach a point where it becomes disabling okay so the point here is that all of us have a threshold of tolerance for our nervous system being activated okay like all of us have that what's unique about the pda child is that even if you can't see it their brain is constantly perceiving danger and threat all around them whenever they lose autonomy and equality, which, you know, in a school like Sudbury Democratic or Montessori is not as much because they have autonomy and they have perceived equality, right? So there's like this built-in system that accommodates their neurobiology versus a public school traditional where every time they're expected to sit, you know, sit in a certain way, sit in a certain place, circle time, do everything at the same pace as all the other kids. It's constantly activating that nervous system. Okay. So what you see, what you see is what's called equalizing the behavior that you see. And this is, this is where it often gets confused with oppositional defiant disorder, ADHD, and other diagnoses that might be partial or not accurate. Okay, so equalizing in the moment is what happens when the brain perceives I'm gonna die. Nervous system reacts, that's the mechanism. And then the body is trying to get back to a place of equality and safety. And so they engage in equalizing behavior. What Christy Forbes, who's a PDA advocate and educator, PDA herself, calls leveling behavior. I call it equalizing behavior. Okay, so the way that this would look like in the moment is if you set a boundary, it's constantly escalating. Like the child might say, stop talking or reduce meaningful conversation. That you might tell them to stop touching something and then they, it seems like they reflexively and impulsively touch it. And it is reflexive cause it's like an autonomic response to the perception that they've lost autonomy. Okay. So sometimes like being asked to clean up at school, they might drag their feet more than the other kids, but at home they might like physically fight the parent not to, okay? So they can also use other avoidance strategies, which I prefer to call Equalizing behavior in the context of nervous system, fight, flight, or freeze, which is pretending the legs don't work, pretending to be a baby animal, um, reducing meaningful conversation, changing the topic of conversation, um, needing to have the last word saying stop talking. Yeah, there can be physical manifestations like stomach aches, etc. This can be cumulative, okay? So like they might not, Equalize at school, they'll hold it together and internalize that threat response at school. And then they come home and their brain perceives safety with the safest person, which is usually the parents. And then they equalize, like target a sibling. You know, every time the mom or dad talks to the kid, they growl at them, say, stop talking. They might throw things, knock things down. Um, what this might look like in the classroom or a therapy setting, I'm just gonna start with an example of my own son. So I work with his occupational therapy clinic and they are very well versed in PDA now and in him and his nervous system. So they understand equalizing behavior. So often the first thing he'll do when he walks into a clinic clinical setting is he looks for the most organized thing and he knocks it down, right? and it's, It's always on cue because it's his way of like feel he perceives like I don't have all the control here. And I am going to get myself back into balance, but it's not a conscious mechanism and then once he equalizes and nobody makes a big deal about it, and this is what's important about your behavior in response to a PDA or it's just like oh we're knocking down the things. And he's back into balance without escalating it by someone saying, you need to put that back or don't do that. Because again, nervous system response, right? It's not under their conscious control. All of this is going on behind the scenes and in the nervous system, right? And this is why it's so hard for professionals often to see it. And I do wanna mention like with utmost compassion, why this is difficult to spot for professionals. And I have parents ask me this, like why don't doctors recognize this, right? And I say to them, think about it. If you're a doctor or a psychologist, right? And a child comes to you and one child is explosive, defiant, not eating, but sleeping fine and has no toileting issues, but seems really like aggressive. And then you see another child who her legs, she her legs don't work. And she has had a toileting regression, but she is in freeze, not defiant at all, and eating fine and sleeping fine. You're gonna look at these two children and be like, those have nothing to do with each other, right? But the mechanism is the same. The mechanism inside of them, the nervous system is the same. That's why it can be so confusing. Okay, so for a child in a classroom or a clinical setting, what it might be is writing words backwards deliberately starting in the middle of a worksheet like my son does this, the teachers understand it. They'll say, Oh, why would you start in the middle of the worksheet and he'll say because my PDA brain needed to Right? that's an example of an accommodation, however, in a public school setting, they would say you have to start at the beginning, and it would escalate right. He looks like two different kids in those two different scenarios. This is why school setting is so important, (laughs) right? And and it's so important how we respond to understanding the neurobiology of, of these unique kids. It might look like changing the rules of an activity, changing the words, touching, or like reflexively touching a student after being told not to, wearing clothes inside out or backwards, wearing pajamas. Um, Walking away from the activity, which is kind of a flight, beginning of flight, Um, putting head down on the desk and not speaking or freeze or defiance, which is more fight. Okay, so those are like the two first elements, the big ones of like this is what's going on inside the child or person, and this is what it looks like from the outside. I used examples of younger children because of the audience. So is this making sense so far? You can drop in the chat, yes. Yeah, internalized PDA is a different expression, okay. Yeah. Okay, awesome, very good. All right, there's three other things to look for. There's three other things to look for and understand when we're talking about a PDA child. And these, from my experience, can fluctuate a little bit. The first two things are present, I believe, in any PDA individual, whether it's a 68-year-old woman or a three-year-old boy. right? Um, Survival drive for autonomy that overrides other basic instincts and equalizing behavior. Then there's three other elements, high masking, constant need for undivided attention or nervous system safety and the cumulative nature. The first two are really important, but I do know exceptions to these. So please don't think of these next two as like, my kid's not that and therefore they can't be PDA or therefore working with the nervous system isn't gonna help them. And also I should say, you know, a lot of the stuff applies to any kid. It's just a, sort of an, an exacerbation of that nervous system response okay so most pda kids are what's called high masking or camouflaging masking is i conceptualize it in two ways so like the way that people in the actually actually autistic community and some of the most recent research on it are conceptualizing camouflaging is like a learned Behavior for safety to imitate more typical social patterns, whether it's like ways of doing things, ways of interacting, ways of talking, that's masking, right? Also, often driven by the need for safety. But for PDAers, there's a second form of masking, which I call like autonomic nervous system masking, where the child is still experiencing fight, flight, freeze inside their body, like rapid heart rate, the feeling that there's pressure on their chest, the feeling like they need to move their body to get away from the lion, but they're not showing it because they're perceiving that they're not safe, okay? And this is is the primary reason that I believe PDA is not fully recognized besides the first one I said of like the two different profiles of the kids looking very different on the surface. The second is masking because the child can appear as a completely different version of themselves with grandparents and at school versus at home. And when they reach burnout, that's usually when they can no longer mask or internalize that threat response. And you see the problem, the problem of like, Constantly in fight or flight, having trouble accessing basic needs, potentially explosive. This was my story with my son of like, nobody believed me because he appeared completely, quote, typical around and compliant around most people. And then at home, it was like, well, I must just be a terrible parent because he's a. I'm just gonna be on PC here. He's a feral animal with me. And like, no matter what I do, it's just escalating and he's not eating and he's not talking. And until we reach burnout, nobody took me seriously. And then it was like, take him to the psychiatric emergency room. Okay, so we wanna have more nuance when we're supporting families (laughs) with this stuff of like, I don't believe you go to the emergency room, right? That's why we're all here as educators, as therapists, as teachers, as parents. Our grandparents so masking is something to really understand because it can be so so confusing and it can also make you feel like a terrible parent because the child will behave the worst with the safest person so if that's you please understand that it's actually a reflection of the safety that they feel with you okay last two and then I'm gonna conclude hopefully on time Um, I have some questions coming in about the masking. Is fight flight freeze response the same thing as anxiety or these differences in concepts? I like to distinguish, even though the PDA society calls PDA an anxiety driven need for control, the way that I conceptualize it because of that mechanism that impacts basic needs is anxiety is more cognitive and ruminative and anticipatory of like, And my son has both generalized anxiety and PDA. (laughs) Okay, so I can clearly also see the difference and treat them differently, right? Like you treat anxiety very differently than supporting a nervous system that behaves like a traumatized threat, like a traumatized brain. So anxiety is more like I'm scared to do this. I anticipate this is going to happen. I'm ruminating on it versus fight flight. It's like I'm in a dark alley. Someone puts a gun to my head. I scream the F word and punch the person because my before I can cognitively think about it, my body's keeping me safe. Right. So those are two different things. And it's important to distinguish because with anxiety. Often what we need to do is is gently expose and help the person get used to something and move the bar forward so that they don't completely avoid it altogether versus thinking it's anxiety and treating it as such, and continually exposing a child to trauma, right? To nervous system activation, that's moving them towards not being able to eat or sleep. Right? So that's why I distinguish between the two. I see that there are some psychologists on this call. So like, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but but to help parents understand that, that's how I distinguish. Okay. Autonomic nervous system masking, where body is reacting but child is not showing because doesn't feel safe is similar to what some call fawning. I think it's different. So fawning is like a reflexive ingratiation of yourself to someone in authority to keep yourself safe, right? Like really pleasing, really like focused on that one person who's in control. Whereas like masking might be a kid who's playing typically with another child or just complying and imitating everyone else around them or more going into freeze and maybe like, just seems like the very shy, not involved child. Okay, so there is a more reflexive active element to fawning um, versus masking. And in the name you can hear, it's like they're masking something so you can't see it, which makes it very confusing for educators, for therapists, for teachers, right? Um, and for parents to explain this, right? It's so hard to wrap your own mind around it. How are you gonna talk to the teacher to help them understand how to support it if you you are still like, why is this happening? Um, Constant need for, for undivided attention. So often these children, like if you divert your attention to do laundry or do something, they're gonna demand your attention by like sort of wearing you down or escalating or starting to equalize against a sibling. And this is part of the nervous system safety thing, right? They need a lot of nervous system scaffolding, meaning like, let me give you an example. My son was very avoidant of writing and and drawing. And when he was two and a half, he learned to write his name and then he stopped using a pencil or a crayon for years. When he started to come out of burnout, he would just demand, he would sit next to me and my husband and demand that we draw what was in his brain, right? And my instinct was, not instinct, my conditioning as a parent was like, I need to make him do it so he learns. But we leaned into this like, I'm gonna provide this writing scaffolding, but also like he's here with us, I'm encouraging him. And it took us doing that over and over in an undivided way for months to the point where he felt he could try and draw and write. And But he needed us to be right there, right? He still needs us, and this is why we have a service dog. He needs a nervous system to signal safety to him to engage. Okay, and this might not be as apparent in a school, But a PDA or who comes home will likely not be able to, like, go off and do homework or go off and do a bunch of activities necessarily on their own or play independently. They're going to need more intensive co-regulation from trusted nervous systems. Um, And then finally, which is so important to understand both as a parent and also as an educator, is The cumulative nature of all of this. So often we think about behavior. Yeah, homework, we don't do homework. (laughs) Homework is not a thing in my house. Um, I don't think it should be a thing for any kids, but that's just me. Um, What was I gonna say? Okay, cumulative nature and the way we think about behavior. And I hope that this framing helps you to understand your child. The traditional way of understanding behavior is like looking for the antecedent or like what happened right before this kid had a hard time, whether it's in a classroom or in your home. What's the behavior? What's the consequence? And then we're trying to like discern the causality. What happens for a PDA child is that the causal moment is like actually 10 causal moments that happened like earlier that day or last week, and then they're with you, and there's a straw that tips them over. Okay, so like you may have a child, let's just say like in the Montessori school where my son goes, most of the time he, you know, the teachers accommodate him, they understand him, he has a service dog there, et cetera. But sometimes there are moments where he has a really hard time and they're like, what did we do, what happened? Was there something that provoked it in the classroom? And what we always have to do is pan back and think about, like, what are all the moments leading up to this where his brain perceived losses of autonomy and balance or perceived threat? So it can be like, oh, it's Halloween this week. Excitement is perceived as a loss of autonomy to their own body and therefore registers as a threat. So we're going to have a higher accumulation of stress and little things can set them off. Right, so it accumulates over time. This is also why parents are like, I'm walking on eggshells. I feel like I'm being abused by my own child or teachers potentially are like, they seem to be doing fine. And then all of a sudden there was a meltdown or they're becoming defiant, etc. So given all of this The reason I outline this when I work with families or educators is because this is the logic and mechanism for understanding how to accommodate, okay? And and once you understand it, you can get really creative. And whether you're an educator or a parent, think about that mechanism, right? And the two primary accommodations, which I'm sure Jana is going to talk about brilliantly in her self-directed education talk are autonomy, right? And the perception of equality and nervous system support, right? And that's like the scaffolding that underlies these children having success in education. Thanks everyone for being here with me at the At Peace Parents podcast. This is your source for all things related to understanding, supporting, accommodating, and advocating for your PDA child. To go deeper on any of these topics, check out my course offerings and masterclasses at the website, www.atpeaceparents.com. To completely transform the way you think about and relate to your child and to bring peace and stability to your home, join us for the next cohort of the Paradigm Shift program. Enrollment is now open until January 11th, 2023. Hope to see you there.